0: Now friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. As we are now in the concluding chapter of our study, we continue to ask the question, how should we live, ever since chapter 4 verse 1, how should we live in light of the gospel? Not how do we live to be saved, but for instance tonight, how in light of God finding us dead in our sins, Ephesians 2. And following the course of this world and the lusts of our flesh, and even, he says, following after the prince of the power of the air, following after, though we didn't even know it, the enemy of our souls. We were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. How then should we live in light of the fact that God has rescued us, freed us, brought us home to himself, and brought us into his family? So, That's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. We've considered how to live in light of the grace of God in our home between uh, husband and wife, between parent and child. Tonight, Paul turns us in Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 8 or 5 through 9 to the relation, uh, what he'll say, of slaves and their masters. Now that may not be an issue we're dealing with in our culture sitting right here, but it was a pervasive problem, and Paul addresses the issues involved in that here, and so because we're committed to reading the Bible paragraph by paragraph and thinking it through, we encounter a passage on slaves and slavery and masters. We'll take the first side of that relationship tonight, we'll look at masters and in the future but we want to not just consider slaves and slavery we have to say something about it the world uh, screams the Bible is a horrible document because Paul comments on slavery and because of what he tells them to do so we have to think our way through that issue a little bit this evening but we also have to consider what this passage will say to us who are in employed situations where we serve one another it's not identical but there are many principles that apply. So we'll consider those questions as well. Let me invite you then to consider how we live in light of the goodness of God's grace in our relationship with others. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. We'll study 5 through 8 tonight. Slaves. Slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for wisdom tonight, insight, understanding. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to know how you would have us apply this to ourselves. Help us to learn, help us to grow, help us, we pray, to honor you and forgive us for all the ways we know we have failed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we want to say a few words about slaves and slavery. Depending upon your translation, the opening word Paul addresses, either servants, some translations translate it, or bond slaves or slaves. It's the same word. It can be used in a variety of ways. Here, clearly, he's speaking to those who are not free. He spells that out, whether you are free or servant, slave, bond slave. So these people are not free. Uh, They are, in fact, slaved we want to say a few things about that tonight. It was estimated that there were, someone estimated that there were 60 million slaves in the, in the Roman Empire. Uh, basically, the Romans, whenever they conquered another nation, they typically made most of the people they conquered slaves in some way, shape, or form. They, they were the workforce of the Romans. Uh, High-positioned uh, Romans didn't work. They just directed others to do it. And so slaves weren't just domestic uh, housekeepers or field workers, but you could be a teacher and be a slave, a physician and be a slave. You could be a high administrator even in the government and yet be a slave to somebody else. And slaves sometimes had slaves. It was very much part of the economic system of the ancient Roman government, that doesn't mean it was without its cruelties. That slaves were treated brutally. Many who were not slaves considered uh, slaves simply to be property. That was the law, and they would not even befriend uh, slaves. That didn't always happen. Some were treated cruelly. Uh, a master had the rights over their slaves to uh, to punish however they saw fit. Even to execute, if they saw fit, uh, they were treated like chattel. If you've ever heard of that term, it's a it's a min, middle. It comes from a Middle English word for cattle, but it's a legal term. This is chattel slavery. It sounds like cattle, okay? And and, and the, the reason is because chattel uh, were were movable personal property. In other words, anything you could buy or sell and sort of take with you, not land, but other things that was. Chattel. Well, that's how these slaves would have been treated. And you can imagine how then some of them would have been uh, treated in a very dehumanizing way. And what I want you to see at the outset is Paul does not treat them in a dehumanizing way. Oh, no, friends, he addresses them in the church as people who are valuable in their own right, Christians in a relationship with the God who loves and saves and gives them great hopes for the future. Paul dignifies them and, and treats them and speaks directly to them. He assumes that in the congregation there will be both masters and slaves at worship in that community. And so I want you to see the dignity with which he treats them. That's important to see. And then I want you to notice a number of things uh, that we can learn from what he says to them. But. But um, before we get to our lessons for our work, which is different, we need to say some more things about this. Uh, Let me say three or four more things about this. Paul, in speaking to slaves, is thereby reminding you that the gospel is for the lowest of the low. In perhaps the hardest circumstances of life, there is nobody, Paul says, that the gospel is not for. That Jesus is is not for the gospel is and christianity is the champion of the lowest socioeconomic class in any society it's not a religion for just the privileged or the wealthy or people with status it's not just for the elite it's for kings and princes and high places but it is a religion for all and the church is not a country club for those who have But it is a home for the haves and the have-nots. And so Paul speaks to them. He cares for their souls. And he's telling you, he's reminding you, there's no shame in being poor. Or in being part of the lowest of all classes in any society. There is no shame in having to work for your living. Or work hard to serve others your whole life. There's no shame in this. Jesus defines the difference for us between the way that a world so conscious of wealth and status and the way that a Christian attitude ought to be when he says in Matthew or Mark 10, he says, You know, Jesus says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so paul says the gospel is for the lowest and more than that it is designed to bear fruit in even the hardest conditions of life In other words, Paul is saying, listen, nobody listening to me can say, well, you know, there's just really nothing I can do to serve Jesus. I don't have any power. I don't have any money. I I don't have any stature. I'm just kind of a pawn. And if Jesus is really the king of the universe, I'm so small he wouldn't be interested in me. Nobody can say that, Paul says. You can serve Jesus right where you are, Adult or child, even if it is not where you yourself would choose to be, if you could be king of your own life. Would you remember that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison cell? He's chained at this point in Rome in, under house arrest. And so he can identify with them. I I love the story in 2 Kings chapter 5 in your Old Testament. It's the story of a Syrian general who had leprosy. His name is Naaman. He was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Syria was a hostile neighbor bordering Israel. He was a great man, 2 Kings 1 to 5 says, uh, he, uh, he was a great man with, with his master. His master regarded him highly. And he was in high favor because the Bible says the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord had given him victory or given victory to Syria. So God is sovereign over not just Israel, but the Syrians. Now listen, he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper a leprosy. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress would that my lord Naaman were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Elijah or Elisha I've forgotten forgive me. He would cure him of leprosy she says and so Obviously, her mistress tells her husband, and Naaman goes in to his lord, the king, and says, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Go get healed. Go see that prophet. And so here's Naaman. He's a great and mighty pagan warrior in general and an enemy of Israel. And here's a little servant girl who says to him, there's a prophet in Israel who could help you because there's a god in Israel Who could help you? And you know who that little servant girl was? We're not even told her name. But she had been tragically taken from her parents, from her Jewish mother and father, ripped out of her family and homeland, taken into the home of a Syrian general and made a slave, a servant girl in his household. And she was just a young child serving among foreigners, but she knew the one true God and that he had his people and that he would be willing to help because he's gracious. And so she became a help even to a pagan army general because God loves to do that. The long and the short of it is through her testimony, Naaman goes and he gets healed. By the Lord God. This nameless, faceless little servant girl who knew the true God. Now, now listen, I want to I apply that for a second. Maybe in your place of employment, you're on the low end of the totem pole. Maybe you are the most recently hired and, and perhaps the most likely to be let go if that happens. Maybe you feel like you're just a pawn. Maybe you're not among the haves, but you're among the have-nots. This passage is telling you the gospel is for you, and the gospel is designed to bear fruit in your relationships with your co-workers and your employers, even when you feel like you have no power at all. And if the gospel can work in a first-century slave relationship, and the gospel can work through a little nameless Jewish girl, then it can surely work where we spend 40 hours a week employed by others. And so uh, he says the gospel is for the lowest in the hardest of circumstances, and God addresses his kingdom. He addresses himself to our circumstances, not as we might wish those circumstances would be, but as they are actually. He doesn't just say, you know, I'm slave I'm going to change your circumstances and make everything pleasant for you he doesn't say that but he teaches you how to live in the midst of suffering trouble, trial and difficulty but we still say to ourselves why doesn't Paul just declare that there should be no such thing as slaves and masters why not get rid of that and the answer is I don't know and the answer is For anybody who thinks they know, they do not know because God does not specify. He is not explicit about why he does not have Paul forbid slavery completely. God simply hasn't told us why he didn't do that. We do know, however, this, that God sometimes gives laws like he did in Exodus 20 through 24 where he speaks about slavery in ancient Israel. Which, by the way, those laws, if you look at them sometimes, those were the most generous laws of any nation known on the earth. They favored the slaves against their slave owners, and they had to be released within six years. It was an economic relationship far more than anything else. But still, we have to ask the question, and we have to say this, that God's laws oftentimes are given to reduce the effects of sin They are meant to alleviate some of the worst expressions of sin. One great way to see that is with God's laws on divorce. We know that divorce is not God's ideal. Ideally, we get married and we remain monogamous and faithful and committed in covenant love till death parts us. That's the ideal. And yet, God's law in Old Testament and New permits Under certain circumstances, divorce. And and Jesus tells us why God's law does that. He says it's because of the hardness of our hearts. So God will make laws about the circumstances under which somebody can be divorced. And it's designed, because we're so hard-hearted, it's designed to keep us from totally destroying one another. It's designed to protect the weakest in that relationship. So likewise, we might say that that perhaps what God has done here is he has made a concession to our sinfulness and he has made allowances for what is not the ideal. There was no slavery in the created order before the fall into sin, Genesis 1 and 2. All are kings and queens under King Jesus to have dominion over all of creation. But he makes allowances for what is not ideal to regulate it and improve the conditions of all those caught up in those circumstances so what i'm saying to you is none of this none of paul's words here are designed to try to justify slavery but many church members were slaves and they needed guidance from paul about how they ought to deal with their situation because they needed god to shepherd them Now, we might ask, what if Paul had simply told them, well, rebel against your master and run away? What might have happened? We could say this, in a a world where more than half the people are slaves, a lot of Christians would have died. And And the likelihood is that the Roman government would have turned against Christianity in a very severe and harsh crackdown. But what Paul did instead of that is he preached the gospel. And he brought both slave and slave master to Christ. And he said, The way that you get saved is by believing in the finished work of another, Jesus. And you believe in him, and he brings you into his family, and he makes you slave and master. He makes you brothers and sisters in one family, in one household, under one father. And he he knew undoubtedly that would change dramatically, and it did. It would change dramatically the relation of one person to another, to know that we are brothers. And so Paul does not support slavery. In fact, if you want to look at First Timothy 1, 9 and 10 at some point, he specifically says that slave traders are ungodly and sinful. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, he's told slaves, if you can gain your freedom, do so. In other words, if slaves were offered freedom, they should accept it. And if they could buy their way into freedom, they should do that too. That's what he says. So uh, we might have more things to say about that issue. Please speak to me if that troubles you. Uh, But we might have more to say about the the, the next time when we talk about masters. But we have to get to the question, what about us? What, What is Paul's counsel to slaves? And how might that apply, at least in some way, in our work Relationships—that's where we want to spend the rest of our time. We have, in a sense, sold 40 hours or more, or, or or so, a week to an employer. It's a relationship we can get out of more easily. You can quit if you've had it. So it's different. But but what are the what are the implications here? What is he saying? Well, uh, notice a number of things. Let me, let me highlight four things with some subpoints under those but look at look at paul's words here in ephesians 6 beginning at verse 5 he says uh, slaves or bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would christ let's talk about some of this he says he says obey with have a respectful heart don't be disgruntled is what he's saying Uh, Obey with fear and trembling, with with respect is what he's saying, and do it as unto Christ, he says. To obey Christ, Paul is saying, means you obey those he tells you to obey. Uh, Children, obey your parents. To obey Christ means you obey your parents. To obey who he tells you to obey out of respect for Christ is obedience to Christ obey them as if they were christ he's saying and be respectful that's the first thing don't be disgruntled be respectful then he says do this with a sincere heart it's his next phrase don't fake it a young teenage servant girl in a in a large uh, mansion she was a housekeeper her job was to sweep the hardwood floors she Uh, met with the elders of her church because she had come to believe in jesus she felt like she had been saved by jesus she wanted to become a member of the church so she sat with the elders of the church to talk about her profession of faith in christ and the elders visiting with her diligent about their responsibility inquired about her profession of faith and one of them asked her how she knew that she had trusted in christ to save her and looked to him to be her lord and she pondered that for a moment she replied because i don't sweep under the rug Anymore. Oh no, she said. I-, I take the dustpan with the broom and I actually clean up the junk and throw it away instead of sweeping it under the rug. I- I've begun to do my job not in an insincere, but in a sincere way. That's how she knew she'd been converted. That's what he's wanting from us. Likewise, he wants us to have a whole heart, not a reluctant heart. Notice in verse 6, not by way of eye service or man-pleasing or people-pleasing, but, but work, he says, as slaves of Christ. In other words, be wholehearted in this, doing, it, doing the will of God from the heart. The temptation for all of us is to do the least amount to put in the least amount of effort to get by with our boss. To pass our performance review. To give the minimal effort necessary to please our boss. Paul says don't work that way. Not with half measures. Not with a half heart. Uh, don't just work when you know your boss is watching you. While you shirk off your duties when they're not. But he says um, "He says, work hard. If, if God has called you. To sell shoes, be the best shoe. So I even practiced that, and I still got it wrong. Be the best shoe seller you can be. And if he's called you to be called you to teach, be the best teacher that you can be. And if he's called you to be a plumber, be the best plumber that you can be. And if he has called you uh, to push papers at a desk, be the best paper pusher at a desk. That's you can be. And if he's called you to raise children at home, be your best. Do your best. Paul wants us to be devoted in our work, not half-hearted here. So he wants us to do all those things. And then notice his language here. He says, as unto the Lord. Uh, End of verse 5. As you would Christ. Uh, Not as people pleasers, verse 6, but as servants Of Christ is his language. Uh, With a goodwill as to the Lord, end of verse 7, and not to man. He piles up all this language to say slavery to Christ is liberating. It's freeing. It frees you from the intolerable feeling of serving as a slave to a human boss. By freeing you to serve sincerely, from the heart, the true master you love, Jesus. Even if you really can't stand your earthly master, your boss. Knowing, he's saying, knowing that what you are doing is not the whimsical will of a fickle or demanding or incompetent boss. But you are actually, he says, you are actually serving the will of the Lord, doing the will of God, serving Jesus, even under the boss's instructions, even if you think it's crazy. Because you do it under Christ, you are serving Christ, and there's great freedom in your heart that way. So uh, a number of things here to be said about this, all our work serves Jesus, all of it. John Stott says it this way, it is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for lawyers to help clients shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if, in each case, they were serving Jesus Christ. Because, Paul says, you are. He wants you to think that way. He's your master. So all of our work serves Jesus, he says. And all of our work matters to Jesus. I made a lot of mistakes here. In other ways too uh, but I, and I'm not done making mistakes but as a non-Christian in, in ninth grade I suffered uh, a season of serious and significant depression though I, I couldn't identify it then it took me a while to understand what I'd been through I, I had this sort of increasing lethargy about my work and my academic studies and though I was capable of being an A student generally speaking I was, I was functioning as a D level and C level student I'd show up at biology class and find out there was an actual biology dissection exam I hadn't even cracked a book for or thought about. And my response was, oh well, so what? The reason was I I couldn't see that anything mattered at all. I couldn't see the point of any of my academic studies because I couldn't see the point of anything in life. Life was just utterly meaningless and nothing had taste, nothing was good. And it, it, it did take, uh, under, uh, under some pressure from parents and teachers, <laughs> uh, it, it did take that to improve my work, just to get them off my back. Not because I was engaged or interested. Nothing seemed to matter. Until my conversion after my senior year of high school, right before I went to college, I, I met Jesus. And suddenly I realized, by his grace, everything mattered. The world had color. It wasn't black and white. And everything was, was valuable and important in some way because he was Lord of it all. And he said it was important and valuable in some way. So photosynthesis suddenly and calculus and Beowulf and the history of world wars and playing the piano, it all seemed to matter in some way. Because it related to him and it mattered to him. And so it began to matter to me because he said it mattered. And so my education became interesting, even exciting, because work mattered. And then, and that was a great freshman year of college, pouring my heart into my academic studies. And then I, I fell in with a, a group of very sincere and extremely loving Christians who were wonderful to me. But they imbibed, they, they breathed, they lived an attitude that said, well, you know... Academic studies really don't matter. The world's just going to burn one day anyway. And, and really, we're not here uh, to, you know, to study books. We're not here to go to class. Uh, they wouldn't have said it, I think, quite this uh, harshly or brashly, but we're not really here to prepare for a lifetime out in the career world. We're just here to serve Jesus. And the university setting is just a pretext for us to seek to save souls. And so in that context, it was easy to spend literally 20, 25 hours a week or more in ministry of some kind, attending Bible studies I was in, being urged to lead Bible studies I had no idea how to do, going to prayer meetings, going to ministry meetings, uh, uh, going to social events of Christians, and, and thinking that, well, the academic side of things just doesn't really matter. And then discovering in Genesis 1 and 2 that, no, in fact... God thinks all this is important. He didn't just redeem me, but he made me. And he made me, he, as he made every person, and as he's redeeming every Christian, to be a lord over his universe under his lordship. And to have mastery of something in this life and in the world to come to sit with him and rule over all things. We're going to keep learning, folks. We're going to begin to think the thoughts of God about the way everything works. And we're to, we're to be masters of it. And So, so. All of our work matters to Jesus. Martin Luther put it this way The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. We, we so often divide the world into the spiritual things and secular things. We, we think, oh, well, it's a really spiritual thing to be a, a minister or a missionary or to lead Bible studies or prayer meetings. Well, those are spiritual works. So those are really important. But, you know, secular works, well, those things like, you know, being a teacher or a plumber or a farmer, or a nurse or an engineer or whatever it is, Homemaker, those those things aren't that important. Not nearly as important. But Paul says they are. Because Christ is Lord of your work. And whatever legitimate work he has called you to. He hadn't called anybody to be a gangbanger. But there's a tremendous amount of legitimate work in this world. Whatever calling you have, if it's, to, if it's to clean up a neighborhood every Friday morning at 7 a.m. Because God likes clean neighborhoods and that's good for everybody's health. If that's what God has called you to, it, it has dignity and value. And whatever you do, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:31, do it all to the glory of God. And your job is service to Jesus. We're all in full-time Christian ministry. We all have a full-time Christian calling because we have a full-time Christ who's Lord of it all. So, so, so Paul says God cares about the work that you're doing and he cares about how you treat those you are working with and under whom you work. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says this is a unique view of life. One lesson it teaches is how muddle-headed it is. To regard work and witness as two different realities for Christians. We witness in the work we do, by the way that we do it. As if we were doing it to the Lord Christ. As if we are his, we are. Well, you're still going to have to deal with, knowing all that, doesn't clean it up. You're still going to have to deal with your flesh. Your propensity to grumble and complain. Your dislike of menial tasks and things that don't seem important to you. You're going to have to deal with all that and more just like I have to. But work, he says, as unto the Lord. It serves Jesus. All of it matters to Jesus. And all of our work, finally and in conclusion, all of it is rewarded by Jesus. Notice the language of verse 8. Knowing That whatever good anyone does, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. You see what he's saying here? God's paying attention to the work that you do. And he is just and he is generous. He is just. None of your work goes unnoticed. There has never been an hour on the job that has been unnoticed by the one it matters most to. He sees it all. He counts it all. He thinks it all matters. And he's generous. He delights to reward faithfulness. Don't misunderstand that idea of reward. He's talking to Christians who have been saved utterly and completely by the work of Jesus, not by their works. But God in his great generosity loves to give generously to his children and his servants who labor on his behalf and he loves to reward our labors. We we say, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. That's one of the expressions we use, right? Right. When you're trying to do something right, you take it on the chin sometimes. Why does that happen? Because we live in a fallen world and we are broken people. This world is full of sin, injustice, inequity. And the Apostle Paul is talking to slaves who knew that better than anybody else. How unjust a world is that we live in. And he says, I want to promise you, dear Christian friend, dear Christian brother in Christ, I want to promise you that That God knows it all. And nothing you do for him will be unrewarded. Not one cup of water, Jesus said elsewhere, given in my name will go without reward from the Heavenly Father. So that's a principle you need to remember, friends. If you labor in a job where you are unrewarded, if you labor in a job where nobody pays attention, nobody treats you justly for the kind of work that you do, you understand that your Father in heaven hasn't missed a beat. One day you will hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that this perspective wherever it is true, would deepen into our hearts and sink its way down into the life that we live, and that you would help us, O Lord, to honor you and glorify you, you who first served us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.